that's how Upshits Creek they were by the time I got on board. They had a full studio up and running. They had animators from all over the world working. The director was directing and they had no script. There was a tremendous amount of pressure. So it was a really strange assignment. While I did my best to bring my emotional game to it, it also had a tremendous practical element for a writer. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. In this very special Halloween episode, we're going to be stepping inside a ghoulish, gothic holiday musical that's enchanted millions since its release 27 years ago. I'm talking, of course, about The Nightmare Before Christmas, the timeless twisted tale of a pumpkin king named Jack Skellington and his ragdoll friend Sally. Our guest this week, Caroline Thompson, wrote the film's screenplay based on a poem by producer Tim Burton and songs by the composer Danny Elfman. Caroline came on board the project at an eventful time. Things hadn't worked out with another screenwriter and with production already underway, it was up to Caroline to turn a loose story into a living, breathing script with a convincing love interest for Jack Skellington. The pressures facing Caroline, Tim Burton and director Henry Selick led to a frenzied creative environment where, as you'll discover in this episode, tempers often flared. It was worth it though. Animated movies don't come much more beloved than the deliriously imaginative Nightmare Before Christmas. Here's Caroline on her chaotic experience making the movie. Why she'll always have a place in her heart for Frankensteinian sweetheart Sally. Why she fought but failed to change the villainous Oogie Boogie and the likelihood of a Nightmare Before Christmas sequel ever seeing the light of day. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Hi, Caroline. Welcome to Script Apart. How are you today? I'm well, Al. Thank you. Really nice to meet you. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. The Nightmare Before Christmas is such an enduring story that people have so much attachment to. Can you tell me about your relationship with the film today, the emotions it conjures for you each year approaching wintertime as people begin celebrating this film anew? Well, it's rather odd, to be quite frank. Um, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas was not terribly uh, successful at the box office when it was first released. Um, and to be honest, I sort of nah, did not really pay attention to it uh, short of the annual invitation to the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland, um, <laughs> which I've never attended but actually and can't this year, but would really like to at some point. Um, but then I was in Sitges at the film festival outside Barcelona several years ago promoting a film, and an interviewer asked me, how does it feel to have written the most beloved cult movie on the planet? I had no idea what movie he was talking about. <laughs> uh, so I said, well, you know, I asked him what he was talking about, and it was Nightmare Before Christmas, which I thought was enormously enchanting. And I noticed later when I went to visit my cousin in Barcelona after the film festival that in the plaza, the plaza there uh, was a gigantic Jack Skellington on stilts. And I soon learned that there are Jack Skellington stilt walkers all over the world. It just kind of blows me away. And I still see people wearing uh, Jack or Sally sweatshirts and whatnot. It just it kind of amazes me. It's, I think it's fabulous. Yeah. And that adoration, it, it 
stretches across generations. You've got people who grew up with the film, who love Jack Skellington. You've got people who weren't even born when the movie was released, who loved Jack Skellington. What do you put the longevity of this film down to? What is it that's resonated so incredibly with generation after generation? I have no idea. <laughs> um, I, I, I suppose it's the sense, I mean, all the stories that I write are about not belonging and not feeling uh, part of the community, um, either feeling responsible for it like Jack does or um, hidden away from it like Sally felt before she escaped. Uh, and I do think that those are very strong feelings um, in every human. We somehow feel, um, you know, imperious about being here, but also uneasy and as if we don't belong. It sounds like that's a sort of screenwriting philosophy or a storytelling philosophy that you've had for a long time, because there's a quote of yours I love. So you once said that all your stories are basically the same story. They're animal stories, literally in some cases, metaphorically in most. What does it feel like when the world is not made for you and you're basically expected to simply slot in? When the table is so high you can only see the bottom, those are my stories. I love that quote. What do you think led you to that philosophy? Is, is it just that there's something so emotional and so human and relatable about stories about outsiders? I was born into sort of a chaotic family, as I think many of us are. And I mean, my mom had three children under the ages under the age of four at one point, which when I imagine that, and she was young herself, she, she had me when she was 27 and my brother when she was 23. It's just unimaginable to me how, she, and her parents were next door and she took care of them. I mean, I don't know how she coped even as successfully as she did, but I do know that, that to, um, you know, that to succeed or survive in, in that configuration, you know, it was required that one just slot in, which I was not very good at. <laughs> I created a bit of chaos, I think. But at any rate, I think I think that a lot of us are born into families where that's how we feel. Yeah, that's that chimes with what uh, Tim Burton has described about the movie. He's often said that um, the character was born out of like his childhood in Burbank and a sense of loneliness that he grew up with. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of interested to know, can you remember at what point in those early years it was that you started to kind of gravitate towards storytelling and maybe started fooling around writing stories of your own? I remember it exactly. Um, <clears throat> it was in sixth grade and I wrote a, sh a short story <clears throat> uh, that moved my classmates to tears wow. and and the, the, the swell of <laughs> the addiction of that was... Um, <laughs> probably what got me started. It was a story of a, I, I grew up in Washington, DC, and it was a story of a, a blind flower vendor in Georgetown who uh, didn't see the traffic when he was called across the street to bring a bouquet, got killed. And all that was left behind uh, was the precious gold watch on a chain that he had worn in his vest. Um, oh, everybody just wept. It was fabulous. The next story was about a woman with a brain tumor. <laughs> I think I would have been a lot more successful screenwriter in terms of commercial success if uh, 
if I'd written my scripts when I was 12 years old, I had such a <laughs> melodramatic and, and still and straightforward sensibility. And I figured out what worked, you know. You did. You did. That's interesting because, like, I had read of this sort of transformative summer for you. I think you were around 16 and you were living in England and you, you were in a house full of what you described as kind of creepy paintings. And it was around this time that you saw A Clockwork Orange for the first time. And I had assumed that maybe that was sort of this transformative time where something awoke in you and that's when you started to develop your love for these these sort of sensibilities. But it, it sounds like you already kind of were gravitating towards those themes and a slight darkness before this point. That summer was certainly when I, when I fell in love with language and words. And I mean, I fell in love with, I, I, I strangely as a child, even though I grew up in a house of books, I, I was not really a reader. All I ever wanted to do was be on a pony. So, um, which is funny because I'm not an athlete, but there's something about that animal that um, has always held me in its thrall. Um, But yes, we spent a summer in Islington um, renting the home of a journalist called Connor Cruz O'Brien. And his interior design sense was far more radical than any I'd ever been around. The walls were painted purple and the art on the walls had a, was literally three-dimensional, which I'd never even imagined was something, was a thing. And he had an entire bookcase of Penguin paperbacks. I think he probably owned every single Penguin, Penguin paperback published. And I, to my mother and everyone's dismay, preferred to stay home and read through this collection of amazing books rather than go to Coventry Cathedral or whatnot. So um, basically I spent my days reading Penguin Paperbacks. I read Fitzgerald, Faulkner, Hemingway, all that stuff for the first time. And then in my evenings, I would go to Piccadilly and, you know, do drugs and pick up boys. It was, <laughs> I discovered those things that summer too. It, it, it was really, truly transformative and has made me feel a tremendous uh, kinship to, to London when I, when I first went back. So that was the summer of 1972 that we spent in, in Islington. When I, when I first spent any time again in London was when we were making Secret Garden and the hotel we stayed in was on Leicester Square. And outside in Leicester Square, all the kids were singing Beatles songs, just like they had been all those years earlier. It was like, it was literally a feeling of coming home. <laughs> wow. That's the sort of thing that it, when I see in films, like, it cuts to London and there's a big Union Jack flying and people are singing Beatles songs. I'm always like, does that really happen? But I guess it does actually happen. Well, it did. Uh, I, I'm here to tell you, and I'm sorry for you not to have experienced it because it was fucking fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a moment ago about animal stories. How does Jack Skellington fit into that mold? How is Nightmare Before Christmas an animal story about someone trying to fit into a world that they don't quite belong? You know, it's really hard for me to speak to the character of Jack um, because, uh, as I'm sure you've read, my relationship to the project was was uh, a little bit coming through the back door, which is to say um, I was not the first writer hired on the project. I had a, a romantic relationship with Danny Elfman at that time, and he happened to be living at my home because his house was undergoing a renovation. Um so he was writing the songs for Nightmare 
in my house. Um, I was not the writer, much to my dismay. And uh, so I overheard the work he was doing and I, and, I, and I saw how he was developing the character of Jack. And in fact, um, by the time I was brought onto the project because the first writer ha had been a disappointment, um, this character of Jack was fully, not just developed, fully expressed. And his arc was there. Everything about him was there, um, pretty much. Um, so, you know, I was, okay, now what can I contribute? And this, the character of Sally was completely unimagined by the time when I got there. Uh, she was designed, she looked sort of like Corpse Bride later. Look, she was very Zoftig, which is mm. a, a, a physical character that it was really hard for me to understand. And so I asked Rick Heinrichs, who was designing, um, the sets and the and the characters uh if we could like lean her a little bit more toward the little match girl which is a, which is a character i do understand and frankenstein is a character for whom i have tremendous love um sally actually though in terms of animals strangely through through working with the storyboard artists through working through her um she mutated over the course of production. She became very much like a spider. She became someone who had a lot of stratagems and plans and, and was cunning and um, probably smarter than any of us, which is, I think spiders probably are. Mm -hmm. And, um, but that's really literal. The emotional part about being an animal that always draws me is, is, is a sense of uh, the miracle of, of, of communication. And, and I think it's a miracle between humans, but I certainly think it's a miracle between animals and humans. And, and, and you know, many of my dogs have wa wanted desperately to belong. Um, and so I see in them that feeling that I also shared as a, as a kid. Um, so I suppose that's really, you know, what I mean by all my, my, all my stories are animal stories. We're all looking for our spot. Um, on the earth, in, in our culture, in our community, in our neighborhood, in our homes. Um, and, and, and animals really embody that for me. They, they, they express that so clearly and so sincerely. That's a really nice way of putting it. And I want to, I want to go back to something you said a moment ago, you mentioned much to your dismay, you weren't the writer. So Tim wrote Nightmare Before Christmas first as a poem in 1983 it then um which i never read by the way i never saw that poem ah uh, really so what was it when you when you say your dismay what kind of relationship did you have to to this story did you hear about it through danny and why was it that you were so upset that you weren't the person in charge of bringing this to screen well it was in the mythology everybody had heard about the poem tim wrote i you know if not seen it um well, Tim and I had just done Edward Scissorhands, and and you, you know, our relationship was really, really good when we first were friends, and um, struggled through time. And um, I, you know, I felt that I, I felt and feel to this day that I'm his best writer, and he's my best director, even though he literally did not direct um, Nightmare Before Christmas. Our sensibilities are are incredibly akin. Um, and so it's a it's a sadness for me that we um, haven't worked together more. Um, 
and so it was that it was that it was it was it wasn't really dismay it was, i guess that was overstated it was just sort of like well what about me <laughs> it was more feelings of being you know the kid is going like wait a minute i'm here too so um uh that's more what it felt like but i was you know i mean it, it, it's a really re it's a business that if you're going to survive in it you need to be a, a sincere realist so i i'm sure i took it with that cheerful realism <laughs> with which i take most things <laughs> sure me too um, yeah, but I can imagine sort of like looking on with a sense of envy, especially having worked with Tim before, because it, it wasn't envy though. So, uh, well, not it, envy. Envy is too strong. It was just a sense of being left out, mm. which later informed Sally enormously. But what I mean is, I can imagine sort of like looking at the project from afar and thinking, "Wow, there's so much rich material there to kind of work with and shape," because. Nightmare Before Christmas, kind of, it strides both Halloween and the festive periods. Two periods that obviously sit near each other in the calendar, but tonally and emotionally sit so far apart. Halloween is this time of creepiness and fear. Christmas, one of joy and togetherness. Was that part of what kind of attracted you to the project? <laughs> <what> you say. <laughs> <laughs> well, theoretically it should be. Um, I can't speak for all families. Um, but yeah, was, was that kind of part of what attracted you to the project? This idea of being able to tonally do something really interesting by colliding the emotions and traditions of both Halloween and Christmas? Well, that would be wonderful, but it actually isn't terribly accurate because by the time I got to the project, uh, it was, it was like trying to build a house people were already living in. It was really a, a, a you know, like what the hell can I do with, with the gaps that, that I, you know, where can I find the gaps that I can write a script around? Because as I said, Danny, you know, he told Jack's story. So, so <clears throat> as I've indicated, my goal was to tell Sally's story. And, and so that's, that's the character I focused on that and the mayor. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I sort of built the world around, um, I mean, Lock, Shock and Barrel existed. They were in fact animating their song when I was hired to write the script. I mean, that's how up Shit's Creek they were by the time I got on board. They were, they had a full studio up and running. They had animators from all over the world working. The director was directing and they had no script. So it, there was a tremendous amount of pressure. Um, but I didn't really feel it. I, 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 I thought, well, okay. You know, and Tim didn't offer me the project, by the way, it was the president of Disney studios who offered me the project, um, David Hoberman. And, and so when he called, I said, well, let me think about it. And I thought, well, what can, what's left to contribute? And so a couple of images came to me. One was of Sally, who, you know, being stitched together uh, resonates as a Frankensteinian character, um, Frankensteinian, Frankensteinian, whatever, Frank character. And so I had this visual image of her throwing herself out of the balcony in which she'd been entrapped by her overbearing parent, creator, um, uh, and fell to the ground and was unharmed, except that her various body parts went everywhere and she had to stitch herself back together again. I thought, oh, well, that's really cool. And, and then I had the other image of when she, and again, it's the, it's a use of the, of the Frankenstein quality. She unstitches her leg and leaves it to tempt 
oogie boogie while she goes and releases Sandy Claus. So, and, and, and the, the structure of, of the story, I think was sort of, you know, the, I mean, I did not invent oogie boogie. I didn't invent him kidnapping Santa Claus. That's in the, in the, um, Lock, Shock and Barrel song, for example. So those are the payoffs I needed to aim for. Um, so it was a really um, strange assignment. Um, and uh, while I did my best to bring my emotional game to it, it also had a tremendous practical element as, for a writer. I'm sure, yeah. So what was it? When, Your great when, animator, Nick Park, is the only person that I've ever read who said, something's really wrong with that movie. It doesn't feel like it coheres. And he's absolutely right. It was it was built in a very peculiar manner. So just to kind of go back a little bit over the history, um, it, it actually stretches back quite far. As I mentioned, the, the poem was written in 83. Tim was at Disney for a while trying to get the project made, but they were holding firm saying that it was too weird and too dark. Um, he's in fact said that Disney was unable to offer his nocturnal loners enough scope, which is a wonderfully Tim Burton way of putting Tim it. Tim said that? Yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. The problem with the um, prior, prior script was there was no script. None. Not a word. Um, the writer who'd been hired was, bless him and God rest his soul, uh, uh, the Beetlejuice writer called Michael McDowell. Mm. And he wrote nothing. And And when the due date came, he panicked and he took Danny's lyrics and formatted them, formatted them as if they were script. And that's literally what he turned in. Gosh, wow. So that's what I mean by they were up Shit's Creek. I mean, there was just nothing. How had it come together then? Do you, had Tim sat down and sort of broken the back of the story with Danny? And then is that kind of how that, that's the script that, or the sort of story structure that you were handed is that how that had been formed? You know, to be honest, I don't know. I presume so. Mm. I wasn't there. I uh, I mean, it's funny. So I lived in Burbank at the time. There's a funny little community there where we keep, yeah, I don't live there now, but we, we keep horses in our gardens there, sort of. I don't know if you know the American kids television show from the 50s called Mr. Ed. No. Well, it's about a horse and you know that lives in somebody's garden. And that's my neighborhood that was the inspiration for Mr. Ed. So, um, so when Tim would come over for story meetings with Danny, um, and I had an assistant at the time who was a, 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 a very tall and striking former model who had been a longtime waitress at a fancy LA restaurant who was a tremendously good cook because she knew all their recipes. So she would, she would, Tim and Danny would be sitting in, in my garden at the, at the table and Amy, my assistant would appear with a, you know, towel over her arm and pass out her beautiful lunch and, and pour them wine or whatever. They, I don't think either of them drank, but you know what I mean? They would, she would just create this wonderful atmosphere. And Tim turned to Danny one day and said, I don't get it. I've got all the money, but Caroline's got the great life. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, which is, you know, my obsession is to create uh, a life worth living. But, um, so I don't know. I was not there at those initial meetings. And um, Danny's a very sort of, you know, hermetic creator. And so he he would just go into his studio, which was in one of the rooms of my house, and, and work on his songs. I just, I never really 
heard anything, but I heard the various songs. I mean, he did not write the Sally songs. That's what he wrote after I, after the script uh, that I turned in. But pretty much all the songs, I think, um, were written. It's hard to remember. It was quite a while ago. <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Al. Just wanted to jump in with a quick shout out to our sponsors this week, Cave Day. Revising scripts requires supreme focus. The best writers know they need to harness everything they've got to overcome internal and external obstacles. Cave Day lead group focus sessions for a worldwide community every day on Zoom. Think of it like a group fitness class, but for your work. A trained guide leads check-ins, deep work sprints and energizing breaks. Members report they get two to four times more done with Cave Day's science-backed method. Join the world's most focused community and work alongside Emmy winners and Oscar winners. Script Apart listeners can try a free three-hour cave with promo code SCRIPTAPART, that's all uppercase, at checkout. Head to caveday.org to try it out. That's caveday.org. Okay, back to the conversation. So what was it about um, when you came on board that made you realise this character of Sally needs to be fleshed out and there needs to be more of her presence in the film? Well, I didn't really have a choice. There wasn't any other character left <laughs> of significance <laughs> to 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 uh, to examine. I mean, as I said, Danny just like he he took Jack, ran with him, nailed him, told the story. Uh, you know, if I had told some of that story in script as well, it would have simply been redundant. Um, mm. So I, I needed to find uh, another way into Jack. Essentially, since Jack is the protagonist, I needed to find a a fresh way into Jack. And I think the mayor also contributes to that way into Jack, but Sally is certainly the primary conduit. And, yeah. you know, and, and, but her goal, she's got separate goals from, from just wanting to be near Jack. I mean, she's, she's growing up and she's changing and she's seeking independence. And, and I think maybe that's another reason why um, children especially are drawn to, to that part of the story, because that's, you know, a kid chafes, against restriction as much as a kid wants to be included a kid also wants freedom and it's important as you say that this was a character who felt real who had her own goals and although she was secretly in love with jack she didn't exist she wasn't just some something in jack's orbit you know she she had her own her own personality that's that seems important and also sort of quite rare then and to be honest quite rare now well, I think if I were writing her now, I would give her even more of her own self. Um, those were slightly different times. Um, uh, but yes, it was clearly important to me for Sally to be her own prime mover and have her own goals and own motivations and own struggles. And at what point in the process did you start to think and start to realize, okay, wow, there may be... Um, that these characters, Sally, Jack, they have the potential to go on and sort of become enduring characters that people love across the world. That yes, as you mentioned, people will be impersonating on stilts in twenty-five years' time and so on. Well, you know, I was so in in it, I don't think I realized at the time. I mean, I, to be perfectly honest, did not get a tremendous amount of, of encouragement from anybody other than the brilliant storyboard artist, Joe Ramp, also rest his soul, um, with whom I worked quite closely. So I would go up to the studio and it was in San Francisco and I would fly up perhaps once a month and the storyboard artists would take, you know, would break down the scenes because 
<clears throat> stop motion animation, as I'm sure you know, is so arduous. You, you literally do not want to shoot an unnecessary gesture. So they, they, they were a key to the success of the storytelling. And, and so I would make it, they would make adjustments. I would make adjustments. We would figure things out together. It was their animation of Sally's movements that really expanded my understanding of her spideriness. They sort of had her on all fours, you know, moving this way and that, um, for example. <clears throat> and, but Henry Selleck was a, very stressed out character and told me I'd ruined his movie and no waited to speak for years. And Tim, I don't know. It was toward the end of work. And I, and I, I made the taboo suggestion that perhaps we might want to go back into the story and look at the ending again. I'm still not happy with that ending. I'm not sure what I would have done, but I, but Tim blew up at me and had a cow and tried to tear apart a flatbed editing bay uh, in his fury. Um, when I wrote the script, Danny said, he was the first person to read. It. He said, this isn't good. I don't think that this is what you should have done. I was like, you know, so it, it, it's not really very fun being a writer in Hollywood. I have to say, you spend a lot of time, um, bucking up your own self-confidence because you you want to be able to listen, but you also want to be able to trust your gut and and say no, this works or or oh maybe it doesn't. Um, so it was it was I was just too close to to have any you know. But I, and I'm also not of a personality to to go like oh brilliant I put it out in the world and you know I mean that's just not, that's not my personality at all and. As you may have read, Disney was afraid of the film. They, yeah. they thought it was too dark for children. And um, Danny had a five-year-old daughter and, who obsessively marched around the house singing those songs. So I knew they were wrong, but they didn't know they were wrong. So they actually released it under their adult label of Touchstone. They did not release it as a Disney film. And that's right, yeah. It, its success took everybody by surprise, I think to sort of delve into the beginning of the film, that sort of balance between terror and something that's still palatable for children is really evident in, in the first scene. We have this like graveyard procession. We're pulled into Halloween town. You're introduced to all these monsters hiding under your bed, hiding under your stairs. It didn't shy away from the scariness, despite all the kind of like resistance from Disney and all the worry from Disney that this was going to be a film that would potentially traumatize children. Um, so <laughs> how tricky well, that was, was it? Danny, that was Danny unleashing his essential self. That's a question for him really, because um, he wrote that song. I'm not sure I would have written that song, but he, you know, that's him. Were there any things that were in there that were too dark that, w that you ended up sort of pulling back on? Are you aware? No. Wow. Mm -mm, nothing just totally trusted in the fact that kids can handle more than, you know, adults sometimes believe they can. And, and there's a joy sometimes. I mean, when I think back to like when I was a kid and some of the things that I loved, this film included, that terrified, I mean, they scared the shit out of me. <laughs> it was, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> job done. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of like, your I guess like philosophy regarding sort of like what kids can handle and why it's sometimes healthy as a child to be scared because the world outside is scary well I think I'm, 
I imagine that you know the original Grimm's fairy tales and how elemental they were and how, you know, Cinderella's um, foot was cut off. And, and I mean, they were very um, vivid <laughs> in yeah. their violence. And, and, you know, I think that um, what came later for my generation of children with the Disneyfication of, of Grimm's fairy tales um, was the more dishonest thing, trying to protect us. Because, you know, I think children have an instinct at how actually terrifying the world is. And if you, if you deny it, you're going to make their fear worse rather than if you allow them to express it. Um, so I think that nightmare, if it has any um, skill in that area, is, is allowing kids the expression of all those fears and feelings. I mean, I imagine there are kids who don't respond to it. I, I have a four-year-old granddaughter through marriage and um, she, she carries around Day of the Dead puppets all the time. She obsessively watches Nightmare. She, but her older sister, you know, dresses in pink and, and you know, does um, ballet around the house. So, you know, kids are different. And, um, you know, some kids need it weird. <laughs> Maybe you're one of them. <laughs> Busted. <laughs> We're introduced to Jack, it's Halloween, and we are introduced to him as this, like, prince of Halloween town. Characters sort of fawn over him, sort of, they admire him, they tell him he makes moons ooze and flesh crawl in a good way, obviously. But as the film goes on, you kind of pull back the layers to the character and you show this dissatisfaction that he has. He yearns for something more and he, he isn't quite sure what that is, but he knows he, he wants more and there's a, there's a boredom there almost. Yeah, well, again, that's sort of, I think this is, um, these are Danny's issues. Um, Danny was a really successful in California rock and roll star. Mm. Uh, he, he fronted a very popular band. And um, I think he had the, is this all there is feeling about life uh, as a, as a, you know, coveted, beloved you know, fawned over, screamed about. I mean, I went to a concert of his, the girls just, and the, the whole place just erupted and <laughs> shrieking. And I mean, all that stuff. And, and I, and I think he found it wanting. Uh, and I think that his exploration of Jack is about that, uh, you know, is about feeling that, okay, so hooray for my popularity, but where's my life? Um, uh so I think that really is a description of his feel of you know his emotional core. And in terms of the place that that character journeys to and, and transforms into, like pe- people argue about whether Nightmare is a Halloween film, a Christmas film, or both. But it's but it's interesting how your screenplay, in the in the way that has Jack go on this journey of transformation, almost the way that Scrooge experiences that sort of total transformation it really does kind of tick a lot of the same boxes as classic christmas narratives did you have kind of christmas movies that you were thinking about that you had in mind you know i wish i could say yes but um i did not my favorite movie though also bridges halloween and christmas my favorite holiday movie to watch which is a vincent minnelli film called meet me in st louis yeah um where now that I think of it, there's a huge set piece around Halloween 
and a huge set piece around Christmas, um, both of which revolve not just around Judy Garland, but around a, a young child, the youngest of the family called Tootie, um, played by Margaret O'Brien, that miraculous child actor of the 40s. And um, so maybe they're all linked in my head. I don't know. But that's the film I go to at Christmas time. But it does, other than the fact that that film has both holidays in it, I can't really track a connection for you. But it, you know, it, who knows what's in there. As the film goes on, we have Jack wandering in the woods the morning after Halloween. He stumbles across seven trees containing doors to towns representing various holidays. Yeah, that's and pretty he... uh, emblematic and mythological, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So he opens the door to Christmas Town, and he's just bowled over. He's completely awed by everything he sees, and he returns to Halloween Town to sort of tell everyone about it. But people can't wrap their heads around it. The one thing they can relate to is a character they misunderstand as a red lobster-like king who flies at night named Sandy Claus. That's so much fun. I mean, so was that element already in and sort of, it must have been just so fun to kind of work with that material and, and write around that idea. It was fun. Yeah. Now, and, and as I said, all the songs, but Sally's songs were written before I got there. So Sandy Claus certainly was there. I can remember Danny bringing me into his studio um, after coming up with that lyric and, you know, the delight that he felt was powerful. <laughs> Jack then sort of locks himself away in his tower to study Christmas and understand it. And he sort of ultimately sort of decides that this isn't fair. Christmas town uh, shouldn't be able to enjoy the whole day all by itself. And he kind of launches the residents of Halloween town into this sort of takeover of Christmas, which is such a tantalizing setup for the rest of the film we then sort of move into the second act this is sort of the part of films that and the part of screenplays that are sort of traditionally known as the hardest to write is this where some of the problems were when you came on board you know it's funny um um often i have been asked to be on panels at at writers conferences and um i always let everybody else speak first because most of them have a programmatic view of writing a screenplay. You know, this, the first act turn, the midpoint, the second act turn. Um, I'm the daughter of a lawyer who I, I think he used to try to pull that dumb country hick lawyer act. <laughs> and on the, on the stage, I emulated that. And so when it would become my turn to speak, I'd go, golly, you guys are, you fellas are smart. I don't know what you're talking about. I just write. Um, and that's actually the truth that I don't, I don't know anything about that stuff. I, 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 I go with my intuition and my gut. And so when a, 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 you know, a shift is required in the storytelling, it, I, it's, it, it, it occurs because I felt it needed to happen, not because I knew it needed to happen. Um, so it's, it's quite instinctual. Yeah, that's a really hard question for me to answer because it, it's all instinct. It's, and, and I don't, you know, I'm not proud of that, but... <laughs> Because I would, you know, it'd be much more comforting to have a system, but um, that's the, that's the way I work. It works. So, 
Jack assigns the citizens of Halloween Town Christmas-themed jobs, including singing carols, making presents, and building a sleigh to be pulled by skeletal reindeer. Sally experiences a vision that their efforts will end in disaster, but Jack dismisses this and assigns her the task of sewing him a red coat to wear. He also tasks Lock, Shock, and Barrel, a trio of mischievous trick-or-treating children, to abduct Santa Claus and bring him back to Halloween Town. And then, sort of, as the film goes on, we're slowly but surely introduced to Oogie Boogie, who's another of the film's kind of real memorable characters. As you mentioned, like, that character is already in place before you got there. But what was your first reaction to that character? The Oogie Boogie character looks like a clansman. I don't know if you know what the Ku Klux Klan is, but yeah, the, yeah. they would dress in white sheets that kind of had peaks and attack African-Americans and burn crosses on their lawns and hang them from places. Oogie Boogie is a derogatory term for African-Americans in the American South. I begged the powers that be to change something about that character because of that. I said, this is so ugly and so dangerous and so antithetical to um, uh, you know, everything inside me, but I did not win that fight. So he was called Oogie Boogie. He looks like a Ku Klux Klan man. I did not remember this, but somebody recently reminded me that um, at one point, Henry Selleck and Tim had a giant fight over Oogie Boogie where Henry, and I don't remember this at all, but uh, wanted the reveal inside Oogie Boogie to be Dr. Finkelstein manipulating Oogie Boogie rather than the, the sack of moths and stuff. Um, Apparently Tim, rather than have a conversation, just flipped out and kicked a hole in the wall and walked out of the room. (laughs) Didn't want to do that. I did not hear about that until quite recently, to be honest. Um, Though there is a little niggling memory somewhere in there about, a confrontation. Um, so it was a troubling part of the film for me to be perfectly frank. Plus his song is sung by a black man. So it's like, it's like a trifecta of, of wrongness to me. Yeah. And, and I, and as I said, I really did beg, uh, I guess it was Tim because maybe it was Henry and Tim to just like reconsider um, particularly the name you know, the boogeyman, Oogie Boogie. It, it, I mean, literally that is a, is is an old South. I'm from the, in D.C., which is on the, you know, the cusp of the South of America. Mm-hmm. It's a derogatory, a really evil derogatory term. So, Gosh, Well, I had absolutely no idea of that dimension to it. Yeah. So, I, you know, but I, that's not a fight I, I won. And I think it's a fun segment of the story as it, you know, as it was executed, but it is a troubling one for me. So Jack ultimately ends up killing Oogie Boogie and um, he apologizes. Killing him is pretty strong. Well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) He then apologizes to Santa for his actions and Santa's kind of still mad uh, at Jack for ruining Christmas and for not listening to Sally's warnings, but um, he kind of assures him that he can fix things and they return to Christmas Town. Um, as Santa replaces the Halloween-style presents with genuine genuine ones, the townspeople of Halloween Town celebrate Jack's survival and return. Santa then visits Halloween Town and brings them a snowfall for residents to play with, which in a way fulfills Jack's original dream. 
So snow is something. Like, that sounds like it was my idea, the snowfall. I, let, I did that at the end of Edward Scissorhands as well. It, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like, uh, it obviously kind of like, it's a motif that pops up a fair bit in your work. What, what does it represent to you? Because here it sort of feels like, um, yeah, sort of purity and release. Uh, yeah, what, why use that as a payoff in both films? I don't know. It's, it's snow, Snowfall is magical. When I grew up in the 60s, strangely, um, there was a decade of, of warmth in the in the mid-Atlantic region in America. So a snowfall was very, very rare and a cause for celebration. Um, and you know, I didn't even have a winter coat. I had sort of a spring weight coat. I mean, that's how warm that decade was. Um, so that's probably something that's going on in my, in my mind. And of course, since I moved to California, which is now 40 plus years ago, uh, and Southern California, I've, you know, one doesn't see snowfall here. Um, so I think it, it, it sort of resonates for me as sort of a magical transition into some other world. And you mentioned that earlier that the ending was a bit of a bone of contention for some people. Can you remember why that was and sort of what some of the other avenues almost explored were? Well, I don't know that it was a bone of contention for people other than myself. Um, I just felt that it was, I wimped out on Sally at the end, to be honest. I felt like that's where I kind of threw her under the bus as a, as a less than character where she was sort of, um, you know, enmeshed and enslaved <laughs> in her adoration for Jack and, and um, I wouldn't have used those words at the time, but in retrospect, I think that's what I was feeling. And I don't know what her, you know, I found myself still dreaming about what an alternate ending might have been, but I don't really, I can't put my finger on it. Couldn't put it at the time. As I said, I didn't get the chance really to explore it. Um, so it was just a, it was just a feeling of having let her down. Is there, is there ever the temptation to, because uh, there's still so much love for this film and the question of a sequel comes up you know, sort of, a, you know, pretty occasionally. Are you ever tempted to sort of write that wrong, return to that character and do a sort of spin-off of sorts with where you sort of give Sally the sort of ending that you weren't able to give her with this film? That's a great idea. I, uh, it's not really in my, um, I'm not privileged to be in a position to suggest a sequel. Um, and so, I've never really thought about it because I'm a pragmatic person. And so if it's not going to happen. I'm not going to torture myself. Um, but that's a great idea. <laughs> if there ever was to be a sequel, which doesn't seem to be something that, you know, anyone involved is particularly interested in. Um, is it something you would kind of want to be a part of? Has the, has the conversation ever arisen? You know, I, writers are often left out of things and I'm, it really was a break in my relationship with Tim and, and I have not, it's not really been repaired that relationship. And Henry Selleck, the director, it was only years later, he apologized to me for telling me for, you know, I mean, screaming at me that I had ruined his movie. Um, uh, that said, I'm a, I'm glutton for punishment. I'd probably <laughs> the idea. Um, but it has not come up as far as I know. 
And if it has it, it has an included me. I mean, I wasn't even, they, I think they made some kind of 3D iteration of the film and I wasn't even invited to the, to the premiere screening in LA. I didn't even know it existed until after. I mean, li- literally that's how um, deep the break apparently went. Wow. You can pretty comfortably uh, point to all the continued adoration of the film and all these people around the world who love this character and love the film as a whole as evidence that um, I don't think you did ruin the film. <laughs> <laughs> no, Henry took it back. He he had a much harder time as a filmmaker after that and saw, you know, that my contribution uh, was positive. Do you think you'll watch it again, this festive period? Is that something you tend to do? Or does it bring back too many painful memories? Neither, actually. Um, I don't really watch my own movies, Um I know them very deeply because I wrote them. Um, occasionally I show Homeward Bound to little kids because it so um, works in a very clean way. And it it is the only one of my films um, at which I regularly cry. Um, it was filmed by such a clever director who was trained as an editor that when, I don't know if you know that film, but when the old dog comes over the hill at the end, waiting for him is endless. And it makes me ball every time. It's so stupid. I know how it ends. I wrote it. (laughs) Um, That's a movie I've seen a few times. Not a lot, not a lot, but the other films I haven't, I really just, you know, I don't feel driven to, to watch them again. There will be plenty of people who are watching it for you. So uh, you don't need to worry about that. Um, Caroline, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Al. I I do, as I said, I hope that your audience um, enjoys uh, a little bit of a different angle on this story. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, Produced by Kamal Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, thescriptapartpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Uh-huh.